Alan Stern is a planetary scientist and an astronaut that's about to take his first journeys into space, but he understands space. So if you're a flat earther, pay close attention to what he has to say here. And there's some interesting information about a lot of the things that we do know about space and so many different things that you don't know about space. And also the opportunity that many of us are going to have in the coming years to be able to travel to the stratosphere and get a whole new perspective on this beautiful planet we call Earth from, oh, I don't know, 100 to 120,000 feet. So I'm really excited to share this episode and also the new progress that's being made by Worldview for space tourism. Enjoy this podcast with Alan Stern. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have the cold plunge. So as any of you who have read my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, know the cold plunge or cold shower practice is essential for my human optimization, really foundation. It's a way that I can optimize to level up both my physical body with the stress response, with the cortisol response, with the optimization of your hormone regulation that can happen while you dive and submerge into the cold. But it's also a way for me to practice mental override, for me to get myself to push past that initial resistance says, ah, it's too cold, I don't wanna get in. And then you get in and all the benefits start to accrue. And I become a different person at the end of the cold plunge than I was at the beginning of the cold plunge. And every successive time that I do it, I just get a little bit better in all of those categories. So one of the times that I was posting this on Instagram, one of the people watching was the cold plunge that makes the absolute most elegant and best cold plunge I've seen on the market. And I was busy diving into my converted chest freezer and they were like, hey, we got a solution that's way better. Let us show you what this thing is all about. And I'm so glad that they did because not only is this tub the most aesthetically pleasing tub I've seen, it has all of the built-in cooling, filtration, and sanitation to give you a stable temperature with circulating water in a sexy-ass tub. And it's also way cheaper than a lot of the other options out there, some of which still use ice. Like you have to import ice and get more ice and dump it in. And that's cool. It's fun to be kind of floating around in the ice. But this is the elegant solution that actually has everything comprehensively built in. And it's easy to get set up. You just fill it up with a hose and you can use a filter on your hose as well if you want to filter out anything that's in the tap water. And you just have a pristine cold plunge tub that looks great and is available 24-7 for your cold plunge practice. So I encourage you guys to check it out, not only for the benefits to your mitochondria and all the physical benefits, but also the benefits to your mind for that willingness to push past any resistance that you might have, train that mental override, train that willpower, and just check out their tub. If you're able to, this is one of the biggest things that I can recommend to really level up your practice across all levels. So go to thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp Use the code AMP for $111 off and just check it out. Thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash AMP. Use the code AMP for $111 off and share it. When you dive in, when you get in there, share your experience. We'll talk about it. I'll be diving in. So let's do this together. Let's all get a little bit better together. And lastly, we have on it. This is the foundation where I've put all of the information, tools, techniques, everything that I could think of to help optimize the human body, that's where it lives, onit.com. 
So please check it out. We have so many different things from Alpha Brain to optimize cognitive performance to Shroom Tech Sport to optimize physical performance to the total human, which is another level of what people think of when they think of a multivitamin to all of the training methodologies and training tools and even just the information that we have available at the Onnit Academy blog. So please check it out. Onnit.com slash Aubrey gives you 10% off of all of these tools and all of these training programs. And it's truly the best that myself, all the top athletes, all the top doctors could come up with. These are things that people can use to just bring themselves to the very best version of themselves. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything at Onnit. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Alan Stern. Alan, great to be sitting down here with you. It's, this is awesome. Thank you, Aubrey. Of course. So now a lot of kids have this idea, I'm going to be an astronaut when I grow up. And here we are with a real live astronaut. And that's that's like, I mean, I think probably as many people say, I'm going to be an NBA player, but actually more people get to be an NBA player for, potentially than even an astronaut. That's exactly the right statistic too. It's that It's been that hard, but it's changing. Yeah. And I think that's what's so cool about this. This moment in time, the beginning of the 21st century, when it's going from rare to routine, and there's so much more access to being able to have that perspective that astro only astronauts have had. Yeah, what was that first moment where you, perhaps like other kids, but perhaps a little different because you actually went out and did it, and some of this has to do with your skill set and capabilities, et cetera, but there must have been a strong, strong moment that you can identify what uh, people who, you know, in the study of purpose would say like that spark, that spark that carried through your life. Can you remember a moment or, you know, a series of moments that led you to think like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this for real? Yeah. Um, I had more than one moment like that though, um, because of some reversals later, mm -hmm. but I remember being a little boy, like in grade school and I knew I wanted to be in sci tech, something like that. And then I knew I wanted to be in astronomy or space. And then I was watching. Was that just because you had a fascination with space? Well, what Did could you... be cooler? Right, I, I agree. Yeah. What could be cooler, you know, from, from the sci-fi to the reality and watching, you know, astronauts launch, it just seemed like that's an enterprise that's of a thousand year scope. Mm -hmm. I would love to be a part of that, to contribute to that. And I can't think of a cooler job to have in that industry than to be able to actually participate in the exploration of space yeah yeah i i remember you know i think there's a fascination that a lot of a lot of kids have with that it's this exploration of the unknown i think that's a deep primal human drive to just see what else is out there this explorer archetype is is deep within us all i completely agree and what's really unique is that only humans have it of all the species that have ever walked on the earth it's something really deep within us that sets us apart and also gives us a responsibility, I think, to yeah, do sure. that well. I've always felt like humans uniquely are positioned to be the shepherds of this planet. You know, like we have the ability to either create solutions or destroy. Like this is our this is our sacred gift. And the solutions, you know, we live in a cataclysmic planet. You know, there's always something that's going to happen. There's going to be an ice age. There's going to be a meteor. There's going to be that. And if we can actually pull together, get our shit together collectively as one, we can potentially mitigate the damage of this next thing 
that is inevitably going to come it's not like cataclysms which have been a part of our you know earth's history since the beginning of time are going to stop they're not going to stop so we got to figure this shit out stop bickering amongst each other blue or red or black or white or left or right it doesn't fucking matter we got to come together because there's going to be some gnarly shit that happens and if we're not getting our shit together we're all in trouble you're absolutely right um but i think it's hard um in the sense that that never before in the history of this species for all the tens of thousands of generations have we ever been able to actually make a difference that way have we been We've only been global recently, and we've only had the technology to recognize that these cataclysms come all the time and that each one can be mitigated, but in different ways. Mm-hmm. So it's really only, I think, in the, the last two or three generations that that even dawned on people that that should be part of our responsibility. Yeah. When, uh, when was this? So you get this idea. What is the schooling like? When was the moment where you were like, okay, I'm on the track. I'm going to space. Like, how did that come about? Well, the truth is I didn't do it very well because I was a slacker in high school. Uh, the classes I liked, I did really well in, and pretty much everything else I blew off. That's pretty much everybody. So, so <laughs> Right? Uh, and, you know, that resulted in um, uh, a bad freshman year at the University of Texas in Austin. Nice. Of all places. Hook'em horns. Hook'em. Hook'em. <laughs> and, uh, and so I dropped out of college and uh, got a job on a loading dock. Uh, putting tires on trucks at night mm-hmm. and did that for a while. Couldn't make enough money to make ends meet. So I got a second job cutting fried chickens up in Northwest Austin. And that still wasn't making enough money. And I thought to myself, you should go back and really try. You should see what would happen if you're not a slacker. Mm. And that's what turned it around for me. Because when I did go back and try, I found I had great success at it. And then I just knew it had to be within me to want to work hard because i couldn't right. do it effortlessly i right. had to really bear down yeah so then you make it through and you get that you get that moment and what is the training like you know what is the what is it actually what are they trying to what are they testing what are they trying to prepare you for because a lot of it's got to be mental some of it's got to be physical some of it's got to be technical you know what is the blend of how they prepare right someone to be an astronaut well there are different ways for, uh, for different purposes. Uh, most people here in the United States that have been astronauts work for NASA. And so they, they go through a NASA regiment. I'm the first guy to be selected by NASA to fly as a commercial researcher, to do research on a commercial space flight, in this case, Virgin Galactic. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it's much more do it yourself. Um, Virgin has a training curriculum, but it's mostly for space tourists. Mm-hmm. familiarity with the vehicle and familiarity with the sensations. But you know, in my career, I've done most of that stuff. I've flown in zero gravity on these zero gravity airplanes dozens of times. And I've been in centrifuges, pull five, six, seven Gs, practicing for launches. I've flown on... How many Gs does a launch get up to? Uh, five on Virgin Galactic yeah. and reentry six. Um, and I've flown the Virgin Galactic profile. Uh, for years, I flew F-18s as a backseat astronomer, um, and I flew uh, on a U-2 derivative and F-104s and other high-performance 60s through 80s era um, jets like you'd see on Top Gun. Mm-hmm. And so I'd done a lot of the kind of physical training that a space tourist would try to get a little sense of. In my case, I'm there to do some work. There's a very brief period of time. 
I've got some equipment, uh, an astronomy experiment and a physiological experiment. So I have to know how to work them very well and to work within the confines of the cabin and the time that's allowed. And so that's the, the most intensive part of the training is just making sure that you've all got that down because the clock is ticking. There's only four minutes on each flight. Right now I'm lined up for three flights and uh, uh, I want to make sure that uh, we have a really good result even on the first, first time out of the box. Mm-hmm. So your, your very first flight was a Virgin Galactic flight. In, it'll be in the future. It'll be in the future. Yeah. 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 So this has all been a long journey leading up to leading up to this thing. What are your feelings as you approach this this moment that's been uh, that's been kind of in your mind's eye for a long time? Um, sometimes I just think it's been a long and strange trip. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I bet. Um, and uh, and other times I think um, uh, I know that I'll perform well, but I, I think. Um, Will I be distracted by the sensations, you know, the chance to see the beautiful earth? Um, I've been in zero gravity many times, so I'm used to that. Um, but, uh, you know, this is a, a brand new experience and I'm not there to look out the window. I'm there to perform and it'll be very obvious. So I feel there's a high bar, a personal bar mm-hmm. to make sure it works the first time out of the box. Yeah, of course it has to work. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing about it. Now, Talk a little bit about these flights because these flights are they're pretty short. The the Virgin Galactic flights. Yeah. So you, uh, if you're not familiar with a Virgin Galactic flight, um, they're kind of like the old X-15s in that there's a carrier aircraft. There's a big aircraft that has the spaceship slung under it, and the carrier takes it up to about fifty thousand feet altitude. And once they've done all the checks, they release, and then the spacecraft fires its engines for a little over one minute to accelerate to the speed that it takes to go up and reach space. And it's mm-hmm. during that period that you have all those, um, those Gs, the acceleration. Yeah. And then the engine cuts off and your weightlessness and your, um, you know, I'm sure your view out the window is just mouthwatering. Yeah. All right. And everything in the cabin that's not fastened down starts floating. It's just like that on the aircraft too. Sure. Um, all the wires and cabling and everything associated with experiments and other gear, it's like snakes floating around in the cabin. Yeah. And, uh, and so my job will be to, uh, you know, egress the seat, go over to where the equipment's stowed, get the equipment out, turned on, do the observations in order. Meanwhile, that's being choreographed with the spacecraft. It's making turns to look at the different uh, astronomical objects and the Earth, and then get it all put back and stowed again before we get into that reentry. And, and I have to be back in my seat because you don't want to, you don't want to experience falling two meters in a 5g acceleration right uh, that's dangerous um and then from there on out um my job is is done and it'll be a chance to just enjoy the re-entry and that whole that whole thing is going to be what four minutes something like that four minutes for the work period and that's the most challenging part of it is, yeah. is the time pressure yeah that's uh, you're on a you're on a tight shot clock yeah exactly exactly yeah i'll have some help um, I'll have someone on the ground that's calling out the steps for me. So I don't have to be looking at a checklist, reading, checking what time it is. Mm-hmm. What's your, what are you doing with, because I was doing a little research and saw that you were involved with a new horizons project. Is that, is that right? What's your role with that project and what are you guys up to or gals? Uh, what are you guys up to for that? Yeah, well, this is a big project. Uh, it's been going for 20 years. Uh, it's NASA's first mission to explore Pluto 
and everything that's out there beyond that we didn't even know about until the 1990s. We didn't even know that part of the solar system existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, about 2,500 people, 2,500 men and women have been involved in this. It's about a billion dollars of NASA investment. And my role is to lead it uh, since the very beginning when we were in competition with other groups that wanted to do the same mission. Um, I've led it and, uh, and so that keeps me pretty busy. So what, how did that work between, you know, you're working with Virgin Galactic and you're working for NASA with this or just with NASA in conjunction with this? Uh, so I work for a private nonprofit uh-huh. um, based in San Antonio, Texas called the Southwest Research Institute. It's about 3000 employees, very diversified R and D company. It's been around for 70 plus years now. And uh, we work for NASA under contract to NASA to do New Horizons. And it's not just Southwest, but also other partners like the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab and quite a number of universities uh, and other institutions. Uh, Similarly, for the Virgin Galactic flight, Southwest Research Institute is under contract to fly me on those series of flights um, for NASA. Mm And so what if, what is, uh, what is the mission? What do you, what is everybody trying to hope to discover by traveling and sending this? As far as I understand, it's the farthest man-made object ever f- flung out into space, right? Um, actually other spacecraft have gone further, four of them. Okay. Um, launched in the seventies. Um, this one though has made the farthest exploration of worlds. Um, Whereas, like for example, the Voyagers that a lot of people have heard of, they explored out to the planet Neptune. Yeah. Pluto's still farther out. And so by flying by Pluto beyond Neptune, we broke that record. And now out even further, we're studying the seeds of planets, something called planetesimals, that um, were the, the material and the objects out of which the Earth and Mars and all the other planets were formed um, from. And so it's really a mission into the deep. So what are we talking? Archaeology like of our We're talking system. like giant uh, asteroids. Think of them like asteroids. Yeah. Um, uh, they're different in their details, um, but the cool thing about this part of the solar system is that because it's very far from the sun, it's extremely cold. It's almost absolute zero out there, and so everything that's formed. What is, out what there, is absolute zero? That doesn't. I mean, think of it like four hundred degrees below zero ish. Okay. Okay. And everything that formed out there is, is very well preserved because of that deep freeze. Mm-hmm. So it's a much better, um, uh, more representative look into how things were when they first formed. And so it's, the whole mission is about two things. One, learning about these planetesimals and the seeds of planets in a way that we otherwise can't because if you don't go out to where it's cold and well-preserved, you might look at one, but it's changed over time and you're not getting a representative picture of how the seeds of the earth and the other planets formed. But secondly, as I mentioned a little earlier, back in the 90s, we discovered this whole structure out beyond Neptune, the farthest of the giant planets. It's called the Kuiper Belt. And it's it's made up of a teeming number, and I'm literally talking billions of these planetesimals. And it just wasn't known before then, but also other planets like Pluto, other small planets the size of continents, and by flying by Pluto to make its first reconnaissance, we had a chance to, to make the first study of this whole new class of planet that we call ice dwarfs. 
And so uh, from a scientist standpoint, as a planetary scientist, um, this is one of the most desirable missions I think anybody could be on because by the time my generation and the next generation of planetary scientists came along, all the first missions to Mars and Venus and Jupiter and so forth out to Neptune, those had already taken place. So we kind of knew the lay of the land. And when you look back at what they learned in all those early missions, the kind of stuff like Carl Sagan would talk about, as a scientist, there's just nothing better than, than getting to open that box and see what a new place is like. Right. In the case of Pluto, it wasn't just for the sake of Pluto. It was because it was one of this whole new population of small planets. And it's like going to the first of them and learning about it, that whole class for the first time. When you say Ice Dwarf, it reminds me of uh, something that you would see north of the wall in Game of Thrones, right? Like it, it doesn't really, I don't have a strong astronomy background, right? But ice would imply to me water, water that's frozen. But is that just a name because it's so cold? Or is this actually, is this actually H2O in a frozen state? And what is a, what is a dwarf? Yeah, so the dwarf planets are um, the smallest class of planet that we know of. Um, and as I said, they're, they're the size of continents instead of like the size of the earth. Mm -hmm. um, they're more like the size of the earth's moon, um, but they're very common in the outer solar system. And it turns out we can fingerprint their composition by studying the light from them with a technique called spectroscopy. And uh, they're all covered in different kinds of ices. Water ice is actually the most abundant ice in the outer solar system. And Pluto's um, total mass is about a third water ice. Um, but on top of that water ice is a frosting of more exotic ices that you can't have except in very cold places. One of them is frozen nitrogen. Mm. Like we're breathing nitrogen right now. It's a gas on the earth because the temperature is warm. But way out in the outer solar system, it actually snows onto the surface and becomes another kind of frosting on top of the geology. And there's methane, which is uh, natural gas, but mm -hmm. it's frozen onto the surface. Um, and there are other exotic ices there too. But what's ubiquitous about this whole population of small planets is that their surfaces are covered in these various um, ices, either water ice or more exotic ones. Yeah, so these, in these um, planetesimals, that are comprised of this different type of ice. The idea, I guess, is that they collide into each other and that's what ultimately forms a larger size planet, hypothetically an Earth, some trillions of years you ago have, or whatever. Yeah, exactly right, Aubrey. So, so planets build up by small objects running into other small objects and accreting together. And then something else comes in and something else and it eventually grows to the size of a full-born planet, um, whether the size of Pluto or the Earth. But there's always been a problem in understanding how you get um, from the original dust grains before there were any macroscopic objects um, to things that were just a few kilometers or a few tens of kilometers across. And there were different theories for this, mathematical theories that work out the physics. And the computer models were kind of um, competing. And we couldn't tell which theory was right. There were two major competing theories. And when New Horizons made its first flyby of one of these planetesimals called Arakoth, which is an Indian word for the sky. Mm. Um, this was in 2019. And this was, I saw a picture of this. It looks kind of like a snowman with two balls on it, but a little you, lopsided. You got it. Like we, the top ball is going to fall off. <laughs> Except it won't. <laughs> it won't. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it won't. Right. Not it's, a lot of gravity. Not in the last 4 billion years. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, exactly. We call it um, 
uh, a bilobate object that has two lobes. But you described it another way. And it's perfectly accurate. And when we flew by Erkoff, all of the geological signs, absolutely every one of them pointed to this newer theory of how the planetesimals formed called the streaming instability model um, that has to do with very gentle accretion as opposed to things ramming into each other at high speed, mm. which sort of settled the debate. Um, once and for all, it's nice to do a definitive scientific experiment. And, but sometimes the data is muddled and you can't really tell something's in, in the lead. It's more likely to have been what actually happened. In this case, it was pretty cut and dry. There were so many lines of evidence that all pointed to the same theory and not the other theory. The other theory couldn't make this thing that now it's pretty much settled. And that's um, within the understanding of how planets form. That's a huge advance. Yeah. And it was never possible before. And now it's done. It's in the textbooks. So you have this thing, Erikoth, and eventually with enough accumulation of these different planetesimals fusing into it, it could become an actual planet. Like right. one day when Erikoth grows up, it'll be a real, a real planet. It'll be yeah. a real boy. Right. In fact, other objects that that weren't named Erikoth did that and became a right. Pluto or a Mars or an Earth. In the case of Erikoth, maybe we should say it didn't get lucky. It didn't get to grow up yet. Right. No, but all that time has taken place, and now we know the conditions out there. Um, uh, we'll never build a planet out of it. Uh huh. So that time it missed its opportunity. It missed its opportunity precisely. Oh, right. Well, sorry, Erikoth. You yeah, know, it's all good. You get to just enjoy, be present with what you are. There you, know, you are. Don't try to be anything more than you're not. And it got to teach um, human beings <laughs> there, something very look, important. Sacred purpose, no matter what you're. There you are, go. You know? Exactly. So this, there's a point. So let's say you know some of the planets that we know, they started in this kind of lopsided shape. How come all the planets? Are all they're all, all round. round? Yeah, yeah. They're never anything but round, right? Right, right. You'll never see a square, or triangular planet, or a lumpy planet on mm -hmm. Star Trek or anywhere else. Um, and the reason for that is, um, it's actually interesting, uh, but it takes a moment to describe. Let's go. So, so this chair is not round, correct? And the reason is because its shape is controlled by the the um, the bonds between the molecules in the wood. And that, that, those bonds are strong enough that you can make it any shape and it'll stay this way virtually forever, okay? And that's true, and that's the reason that if you have small objects in space like asteroids that are much bigger than this chair, they're even bigger than skyscrapers, they're, they're like the size of cities, they always look lumpy, like potatoes or something like that. Mm -hmm. They don't have enough gravity to overwhelm the, the strength of the chemical bonds. Mm -hmm. But as you keep piling on more mass, Objects cross a boundary where the gravity overwhelms the material strength and they become spherical. So everything just kind of compresses it into does. itself because of the gravitational force that's created from the mass itself. Exactly. And is it the, because the mass is spinning that creates the gravitational no. force? No. No, it's just the fact that there's mass there. In fact, the spinning works against this a little bit. So it actually also has to overcome the centripetal force from the spinning, um, which is just a, a, a sort of detail. Um, but we can calculate in a computer what that size is, where objects that were lumpy, if you keep piling on mass, will transform to be spherical. And in fact, we're looking across the atlas of all of the objects that have ever been explored by spacecraft, more than 100 of them now. We, if you line them up by size, you see this beautiful physics take place. 
these lumpy things, as they get bigger and bigger sizes, they start being less lumpy and less lumpy because gravity's trying to fight that chemical bond stuff. And then it crosses a boundary and things become magically almost perfectly spherical. They might have mountains and little bumps on them. Sure. They might have canyons. Um, they might even, um, do if they're fast spinning, be a little bit egg-shaped. Um, but by and large, this physics just perfectly works, and we see it demonstrated in, uh, in our view of the solar system from spacecraft. So arguably, the bigger the planet, then presumably the less, the less surface anomalies like the the trenches, like the Mariana Trench or the Everests, there's going to be pressure from gravity to actually homogenize those and make an even flatter planet. Except it turns out it's more complicated. There's always, <laughs> there's always some fucking detail, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Right? So when you have a, 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 a substantial sized planet, inside of its interior, um, you can get um, this separation that the Earth has into a metallic core, so all the iron and the heavy elements sink to the middle. And then you get this mantle, which Wait, is- Wait, you mean the earth isn't hollow and there's not giant lizard people that live down there? No, and it's not flat either. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Ah. But anyway, um, above that liquid, uh, that, that core, there is a liquid layer called the mantle um, where heat is trying to escape from the deep interior mm -hmm. and it's molten down there. I mean, it's really hot. And that drives currents like you would have in a roving boiling pot of water. And uh, those currents cause um, geological stresses up at the surface that can create interesting geology and canyons and, and mountains mm -hmm. and other kinds of things um, that, that form the details on the surface, but that aren't part of the big picture. Right. When you see one of those beautiful pictures of the earth as a, as a globe made from space, you really can't see any of that surface detail until you zoom up because that's only a little detail on sure. the surface, like a scar. And then even on bigger planets, you know, Jupiter is 300 times the mass of the earth. It's just gargantuan by scale. You know, if, if Jupiter's 10 feet across, the earth is like a little soccer ball. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's even smaller. But the point is Jupiter is this massive planet that ought to be perfectly spherical, but it generates a, a weather patterns in its atmosphere that create its own kind of surface detail, but on a surface that's not made of rock, but that's only made of gases. So there are always these details. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how does a, how come some of these planets form from solid matter fusing together? And some of these planets, the gaseous planets are just an accumulation of gas. How do, they, how do they form? Is there little gas planetesimals that, that merge together? Or does something, does all the solids liquefy into gas? This is a really deep question. Um, and, and we know the answer to it now. And the reason we know the answer is mostly because we're able to see other examples of um, forming solar systems far across the galaxy, around other stars. And what we find is that before the planetesimals form, in every instance we found, there's gas and dust, um, and the dust clumps into the planetesimals, and the planetesimals build up until you get objects that are massive enough to become spherical. And guess what? Because they have strong gravity, they can now start attracting and accreting the gas. Mm. However, young stars eventually blow all the gas away, and then the gas is gone, and there's no more supply of gas. So in the very young 
solar system, our solar system and others, when that gas was still around, the first objects to grow up to be big planets could suck up all the gas in their area. Uh. And they become these rocky metallic cores that have these gargantuan envelopes of gas around them. Mm -hmm. um, and so Jupiter and Saturn and in our solar system, Uranus and Neptune formed super early. We know that because they had to form before that gas goes away. And we can actually see around other solar systems that that gas is usually always gone in only about 10 million years, which is the blink of an eye compared to 4 billion years of the history of our solar system. So the giant gas planets were the first to the finish line and got there before the gas was gone and could eat up all the gas in their areas. Mm -hmm. And the Earth and Mars came along later they were growing more slowly for different reasons, and the gas was gone. And so they have very little gas, you know, our thin atmosphere. Yeah. But the planets, at some point, they're not, like, Jupiter's still not trying to suck Earth's oxygen into it, or is it? Well, in a, sense, in a sense it is, but it's so far away that, that we don't feel that force in any practical sense. Right. Right. There is Jupiter gravity here on Earth, but it's so tiny that uh, it takes exquisite scientific instruments to measure it and it can't suck it off the earth's atmosphere right so we mentioned <laughs> we mentioned this what are what are your thoughts there's been this whole movement and i think it largely has to do with mistrust of authority you know we as people have felt like we've been misled many many times and because of that we have this rampant mistrust and then sometimes this mistrust gets a little out of hand and you get people talking about flat earth right which oh. is i think the most absurd of the mistrustful <laughs> mistrustful scenarios but still some some people are out there and obviously we're going to get to it in a minute but we're uh, about to talk about worldview which is these helium balloons that are going up and you can actually see the curvature of the earth and pretty soon it's going to be live streamed from everybody so they're going to have a hard time explaining how everybody is getting cgi into their live streams <laughs> on instagram nonetheless uh but you see this in a lot of things and some of them you know potentially i haven't i haven't actually found a sufficient explanation to this question which is so i guess i have two questions one any commentary on this phenomenon but two specifically if we have been to the moon how come we haven't been back that's the question that that's the question that i find difficult to understand and i'm i don't think like oh it's faked for sure like i'm not in that camp at all but the thing that doesn't make sense to me is if we did it once why wouldn't we want to do it again so well, two questions here well the fact is we did do it we did it six times and at the time you remember this is the late 1960s and early 1970s and the politics then was was very toxic in this country. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that was due to um, racial injustice. A lot of it was due to a dawning awareness that this is a planet we live on, it's very finite and we need to take care of it. And the whole birth of that movement in the 60s uh, was actually accelerated by the first pictures of the earth hanging in space. Sure. That made it visceral for people. And there was the Vietnam War in this country. Remember, there were only two nations on the earth capable of competing to go send humans to the moon. United States and the Soviet Union. And when the United States won, the Soviet Union denied they'd ever been trying. Despite the fact that now, decades later, we find their old rockets and warehouses, we find their lunar landers, everything. But they decided, oh, that just, we were never interested in that. Right. Right. And then the United States was left there on its own. And there was a pretty big political movement um, to 
make the entire military industrial complex smaller. And even though NASA is a civilian agency, you can go just look at the NASA budget as a function of time. Around 1970, it was just cut. It so was just with the decimated. decline of the Cold War, yeah. the budget decreased. And, and, and so they couldn't afford to do it anymore. And NASA wanted to. And President Nixon said, basically, NFW, nope. No yeah. more. Find yourself a more relevant reason to be. Start studying the Earth. Nixon actually said that. Um, uh, invent reusable spacecraft. That was the space shuttle. Do these other things. Uh, quit going out and collecting moon rocks. So NASA was just put out of that business. And NASA tried under the first President Bush to restart it. And they, they kind of had a half-hearted attempt and it didn't work. And they tried under the second President Bush. Something similar happened. Now we're going back, but it's just been a political struggle. So now we're going back to the moon. We are. When's that happening? In the middle of this decade. So, <laughs> so, so <laughs> that means many, three years. Many, <laughs> many people who've just staked a claim that we never went to the moon and we can't get to the moon for whatever reasons, or the moon isn't real. It's a fucking, it's something from the storybook Goodnight Moon, and it's just a projection of what we are. I've heard all kinds of fantastical things. Pretty soon there's going to be a reckoning, and the reckoning is there we're going to get back there again. Right. Um, I, my favorite movie about Apollo is a little indie film called in in the shadow of the moon and it's about how the men who were on those apollo missions adjusted after this to be in their mid-30s and have kind of summited everest and what do you do next and so uh it's a very interesting film and the way it's put together with these old men that were you know these vibrant macho test pilot astronauts of the 60s and 70s but at the very end the question is some people think we faked it what do you have to say to them and my favorite answer was from uh, one of them who said, well, I could understand why people think we faked it because it was so fantastical for its time and the, the geopolitical stakes were high. So maybe there was a motivation to fake it. But he said, if we faked it and got away with it, why would we have faked it five more times? Why would we take that risk? Right. Why don't we just declare victory at one? And I think that's, that's a very strong argument that this is, it's ridiculous to think that we faked it. I don't think a lot of people even know. And again, look, I'm, I've only just heard rant. I tend to just leave these conversations because I find them uninteresting when people are trying mm. to explain why planets aren't real or why we didn't go to the moon. It's not, not something that I'm worried about. I feel like we have real shit that we got to <laughs> take care of. Like why are psychedelics illegal? You know, mm -hmm. like the things like that, that I yeah. tend to gravitate more towards those conversations. But, but ultimately, I don't think a lot of people recognize that we've been there five more times you know i think it's like everybody thinks it's like it was a just forgotten one time. history right it is right? like who else besides columbus explored north america right yeah, lots and, from western civilization right yeah. and a lot of people don't know even though you probably heard about it in school i know i did but it's hard to remember all but the first right yeah when i was looking i was doing a little research again i saw that um the moon and like some other moons it just shows one side of itself to our planet, mm -hmm. the way that the, the orbits work. But Pluto's moons, apparently they're spinning in a, in a different way. Actually, in, in the case of Pluto, its largest moon, called Charon, is actually locked the same way to where only one side faces Pluto. So the reason is the rate at which it turns is exactly synchronized with its orbital period. Right. And that means that you only see one face. And that's the way it is with our moon. Yeah, and, and a lot of other moons that are relatively close to their parent planet 
mm-hmm. um, because these um, very well-known forces called tidal forces um, just result in that mathematical evolution of the way it spins over sure. time. Um, but Pluto's farther moons that don't feel Pluto's gravity as strongly, um, they're spinning and gyrating. They're doing kind of crazy top things. Um, Pluto's not alone in that. A lot of the more distant moons all across the solar system are that way. Um, but there is this, this difference between the farther out smaller moons that don't get tidally locked and the closer in bigger moons that do. Mm. You're saying tidally locked, and what makes me think is how our moon actually affects the tide yeah. of the of the world. And there's been a lot of theories that it not only affects the tide, it's been largely debunked, but they used to call people lunatics because they used to think during the full moon, people would go crazy, like werewolves. And, mm-hmm. and so if you were acting crazy, it was like, oh, he's a lunatic, basically. He's like within the loon, moon's tidal pull. But we there's not a lot of evidence <laughs> that that's a real thing although animals do act strange and a lot of us who are sensitive do mm. feel a little something different on a full moon often when we're aware of it but what is actually happening why is the ocean subject to the moon's tidal pull what is going on there well it's not just the ocean also the solid earth is but because the solid earth is solid um there's all that strength of the chemical bonds we talked about earlier mm. Whereas uh, in the ocean, um, because it's a liquid, it's, it's much less strong. And so the tidal forces can actually make a bigger difference and raise tides that we see go up and down. Like my hometown in New Orleans, the tides go up and down every day. Sure. And you know, it's, it's different on different days because the tidal cycle and you know, people follow tables. And some places like the Bay of Fundy, it's just nuts how much the tides go up and down. But it's the sloshing back and forth of the Earth's oceans on a global scale, really massive, that it's hard to comprehend, that creates a friction with the solid Earth that changes the speed at which the Earth is rotating over long periods of time and has a back reaction on the moon. And those two things ultimately synchronize until there's no stress anymore. There's no residual tidal forces. So it reaches a a nice, happy, stable equilibrium. Um, Just like you know, a bowl will rest on its bottom, but it can't rest on its side. And the reason it rests on its bottom is that that's an equilibrium. And it's even impervious to, you know, some perturbations. Like if you go tap it or something, it'll just settle back. Mm-hmm. And this tidal configuration is the same thing. And that's why it happens ubiquitously, not just in planets around our solar system. We see it in planets around other stars. We even see it in binary star systems where the two stars interact in similar ways and they end up tidally locked. Yeah. So this is just this is just basic gravitational physics writ large on the universe. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. All right, so <clears throat> looking beyond our solar system and starting to, you know, just posit other different star, star systems, et cetera, that may have life or have had life. Do you spend any time in your own in thought cycles, you know, pondering, wondering, thinking about these legends of the Pleiades and the Sirius system that we find in these ancient cultures and some of these things that exist? Do you find any time in your own mind, like thinking about this from a plausible scientific standpoint? I do. I don't think about the legends of old, although I've read about them a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think all of us as humans think about, is there a life 
off the Earth? Are there civilizations? Thanks to astronomy and planetary science, we now know that, that the number of planets in the universe almost certainly exceeds the number of grains of sand on the Earth. It's just stunning to think about. All these different examples, and it's hard to believe that the numbers would work out that life has only arisen once or civilization has arisen once. What's really hard for me to reconcile with that is that when we look across the universe, we don't see obvious evidence of more advanced civilizations. I think it's probably because we don't know what to look for, the same way that the ants in Manhattan don't recognize the skyscrapers as not natural objects. Right. Um, but there might be a different explanation. People have certainly had other ideas. Um, but we are on a pathway to really discover this life across the universe and the civilizations too. And that's through the development of astronomy and planetary science. It's now told us the planets are ubiquitous. We've only known that really since the early 2000s. Um, and then to find out that many of these planets are inhabitable zones where the temperature is right to have liquid water oceans, for example. So we're slowly getting the technology to inch our way forward to ultimately get to the answer and hopefully to find you know, other species um, that have also created civilizations yeah. that might be ahead of us that have solved some of our problems. A lot of people would think, would say and argue that these species did have a head start on us humans and have already been checking us out for a long time and that there's a kind of global conspiracy to hide the evidence and hide the research and obviously with new disclosure and privacy acts that have kind of come out freedom of information acts there has been a lot more strange anomalous unidentified flying object disclosures and encounter disclosures it's it's a very interesting time that we're in now where that seems to be picking up momentum well it is and aubrey i understand it in the sense that people generally know the earth is billions of years old and yet the human species is only millions of years old and so it's natural to think other species might have come along a few million years before us, or maybe a billion years before us, and developed all this crazy technology and been able to do the kind of things we can't, like cross the galaxy mm -hmm. and go visit other star systems. So it's a natural thing for, for people to think, but it's very hard for me to accept that a civilization that's that advanced that would come here all the way across these vast distances um, either wouldn't make themselves obvious because they could and the same way that we didn't try to be stealthy about our explorations as human beings crossing, going out around our own planet or if they wanted to be stealthy with all this ridiculous technology why would they sort of be stealthy but yeah, not like get it half right? Half-ass half the job. Yeah, I mean that just doesn't make sense to me. <clears throat> well, from just putting on the philosopher's hat I would posit that there are and i have i have my own thoughts about you know potential uh potential alien races and things i'm not convinced that they're actually third dimensional beings anyways because i've done a lot of psychedelic journeying mm -hmm. for 22 years ayahuasca all the different plant medicines all the different mm -hmm. dmts i've definitely encountered beings but they're not third dimensional beings they're astral beings and perhaps these are just projections of my own mind and perhaps the projections of your mind are actually the same as above so below as these projections externally so it all gets very confusing yeah. to start talking about mm -hmm. so i'm not convinced that they actually are but however let's put on the hypothetical you know the hypothetical proposition that the their 
actually third dimensional beings and they're actually traveling i would suppose that as technological evolution because even if you just look at humans we are a kinder more responsible more moral people than we were at any point in history now there's anomalies with that but you look back i mean there's atrocities in every but different- there's also as you say a trend that we're getting better at we're this. getting better we're getting better i mean it wasn't too long ago where there was the inquisitions and slavery and all of these different crazy things that we were doing in this you know manifest destiny where we just felt like it was cool to just conquer a new land or, wipe everybody out or some societies thought it was their their manifest destiny exactly like right all of this crazy shit and we're getting better we're not there yet but we're getting better so imagine all right another another thousand years ten thousand years hundred thousand years i would suppose that we're going to become even better we're going to become even kinder like we're not going to have orcas and tanks and everybody claps as they're deep in their own suffering just because Mm -hmm. they're an orca and we're a human we're like yeah fuck it they live half as long and their fins flop over and they start to go insane and they gnash their teeth against hard objects but no big deal let's fucking keep the sea worlds open like eventually we're going to figure that shit out be like no that's that's fucked up too and all of this animal torture to give us more food like all right let the animals live i understand life needs to eat life but let's not engage in these practices that are inhumane to all species and i feel like we're going to get there and i would suppose that the aliens potentially could have also gotten there and they may just not want they may have some code where they're like we don't want to interfere with them too much however and this is to go to the other point which is why they wouldn't want to first of all make themselves totally known but why they wouldn't want to completely make themselves unknown (laughs) is potentially this is again just hypothesis i'm not saying it's real but potentially they could be wanting to just let us know that their presence is there enough to kind of keep the rails on not like not disrupt us too much but like kind of open the possibility like hey let's gradually let you know that this is a possibility the the surveys are showing that more people believe in us people are going to freak out less there's not going to be everybody pointing their guns up to the sky and trying to blast us some people still will and eventually when everybody's kind of chill they'll just show up uh that's one scenario My preferred scenario is completely different from yours. Yeah. It's that, that, it's that what, whatever's being released in military reports is just a cover story for something else. Uh-huh. And it's whether it's our technology or it's Chinese technology or, or whatever, um, that, um, it, that uh, for whatever reason, the government doesn't want us to know about it. They want to keep it a secret. And so uh, they're saying... It's not a UFO, but we can't really explain it, which right. creates a, a wonderful meme for people to to be distracted from it and go talk about UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I tend to think. But yeah. I'm open to more data. And, yeah, of course. You know, I think I think we're all eager to uh, to kind of understand where this might lie, uh, and potentially in our lifetimes we'll know we'll know more. You know, like that's the interesting thing that I think a lot of us are are curious about is like is will there be a time and when what would what would that look like for our earth well i think they're going to be um, within the lifetimes of people here on the earth now um th- they're going to be a series of breakthroughs where we learn um uh, of examples of specific places where we have evidence for an alien biology mm-hmm. and then as we study more and more we'll perhaps learn that there are civilizations even that they're common um and then there'll be all kinds of sociological questions. Do they have religion? Are they good to their planets? Um, 
Or did they end up being? We should better? ask that. We should ask those questions about ourselves. Well, first. of course, and we do ask those questions about <laughs> right. ourselves. But you know, did they end up the Federation or did they end up the Klingons? Right. right? Because there's nothing in the universe, and there's no physics that forces them to become better and better like we're becoming. There could be others that make a choice. It's just screw it. This is just the way we want to be. We're we're bad guys. We're badass. That's it. Um, I hope that that's Possibly, not the case. Unless there, unless that mindset, the mindset that creates a Klingon is a mindset that would destroy itself like Correct. fundamentally that mindset will eradicate itself because it, it might is turn inherently self it might turn out that most civilizations do that for example and that's why they're hard to find is sure. most of them have self-destructed and maybe hopefully we're on the verge of escaping that let's you go know? yeah exactly <laughs> but i think that science is going to determine all those things over the next century or two yeah when you were talking about the potential for um different things that were military cover-ups that uh that just haven't been disclosed in the right way roswell comes to mind because i was actually talking to ryan hartman mm -hmm. who's the ceo president of worldview and we're going to get to worldview here in a minute and this is the segue but ultimately he was saying that these you know the cover the cover story was weather balloon right and people think like ah oh, weather balloon but he was saying that there is actually far more advanced stratospheric balloons mm -hmm. used for military purposes that were in existence at the time of roswell and then it's very possible that this crash site was a stratospheric balloon that was actually used for spy purposes or some other kind of tech that they did not want to disclose and so of course all of the military rushes in this is a top secret project they're running stratospheric balloons out over fucking soviet union or wherever they were doing it at that point and this was one of these tests that they were running and hypothetically that could be the explanation that explains roswell uh I, ryan could be completely right on this i mean and you know one of the airplanes that i flew to do research astronomy from is called the wb-57 canberra and back in 1960, when the United States was spying on the Soviet Union with U-2 aircraft, one of the U-2 pilots got shot down. The guy's name was Gary Powers. And uh, the Russians threatened like, to seriously retaliate with weapons. Like, you're, you're, you're flying in our skies. You're spying on us. Mm -hmm. this, this is not cool. And Khrushchev gave a really nasty speech. And Eisenhower r responded the same day and said, uh, yes, that was us. Um, but I've decided that that was wrong. We will never fly another U-2 over the Soviet Union. I give you my word. He said it on national TV. So the morning after that, the Defense Department started creating the WB-57. So the president <laughs> could be right, but they could still keep their spying going. Right. And so Ryan might be exactly right that this these, these stories from Alamogordo back in the 1940s were all part of a cover-up, sort of like I was saying, maybe part of a cover-up with the UFO stories today of something else they don't want us to know about because of a higher purpose a reason that they want to keep it on a lowdown which also speaks to this idea that when there is this deceit then people posit an even greater deceit right exactly you know, it's like you li you're it's lying a little nature. bit you're lying a little bit well why, exactly. what's like, i saw from... you cross that line <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly so you probably cross it a lot more yeah right totally all right, well, let's talk about stratospheric balloons because this to. is the reason why we're here in Moab. And are, this is yeah. one of the most exciting things that is coming up on the horizon for me and one of the most exciting things I've possibly seen. And uh, so tell us a little bit about this project. You're the uh, chief exploration officer for Worldview. 
what is going on here? Tell, let the people know. This is the first that I've talked about it. Yeah. So yeah, let everybody know what's going on. This is absolutely one of the coolest things I've ever been involved with in my whole career of space exploration. And that is um, uh, Worldview's creation of uh, a relatively low cost and affordable way for vast numbers of people compared to what's been possible in the past to get an astronaut's view, to see the earth from the edge of space as a curved planet, um, this precious ecosystem, see the black sky of space and, and really appreciate our planet in a way people haven't been able to in the past. And we're creating a system that's gonna be um, safe and, and routine and that whereas in the past 70 years or so, 500 people have flown to have this view and Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, who we love to cheer on because they're doing some amazing things too, um, but they're creating higher price systems that take you on very short journeys that last 10 or 15 minutes um, up to the edge of space and back. Um, and with rockets and very high accelerations that require fit people um, and people with really deep pockets. Mm -hmm. um, and what we're creating is just going at it a different way. And I'm excited about it because I think the potential is so enormous. It's creating a low cost system to do the same thing on balloons where there's no intense uh, G forces. Uh, it doesn't require any special physical capabilities. You don't even have to be fit. If you can get on United Airline, you can get on a worldview stratocraft and fly up to the edge of space. Uh, and we're gonna make it possible for thousands, if not tens of thousands of people to fly every year from bases around the world at all these tremendously uh, inspiring locations like the Grand Canyon, the Great Barrier Reef, and the Great Wall of China, the, the Pyramids of Giza, and so on. And I'm to really forward to the Aurora Borealis it. one. And that's, that's gonna be a spectacular one too. Yeah. I've seen the Aurora from the Arctic Circle and extensively, and to see it actually from space altitude to be a part of it is gonna have to be, it's gonna have to be just so moving for people. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so tell us how it works. These are helium balloons and explain this, explain this process, talk about the whole liftoff because you know you guys have run over a hundred test flights, I've seen the photos and all the renderings and everything that's coming from that. You're now adapting this from an exploration model into a, a consumer model, a tourism model. And that's what, you know, that's what this kind of relaunch here that's, that's happening for Worldview is so that every, everyday people can get up there and get access right. to Right, well, we incorporated the, the, corp, the company seven years ago. Uh, and we have been flying from a wide variety of places around the United States, but mostly Arizona, where we're based, um, flying missions for NASA and for aerospace companies and other government agencies and for uh, oil companies and so forth um, with robotic balloons so no, no people involved, uh, mostly camera systems to, to, uh, uh, to study the earth for a commercial purpose or maybe a national security purpose or tech development purpose. And we've been gaining all this experience at it um, by flying uh, these lighter than air helium balloons, as you say. These are enormous structures, by the way. Um, when they're fully inflated up at space altitudes, uh, they measure significantly wider than a football field. Um, and they're gossamer. They're yeah. gossamer. They're, so they're they're made of a very thin kind of polyethylene, and uh, and th because they're filled with helium, which is lighter than air, they naturally ascend very gently, about the speed of an escalator. But they get up to a hundred thousand feet. It's relentless. They get up there an hour and a half, and there you are. And unlike the rocket-borne 
expensive ways that are being developed, which like Virgin Galactic, I'm going to be flying on. I can't wait to do that. Sure. But um, instead of 10 or 15 minutes, a, a worldview flight will offer six, eight, 10 hours, depending on the time of year, to really take it in, to be a part of the experience, to have, and to go with other people, eight passengers at a time and a flight crew of two, a pilot and a concierge, and really spend the day on the edge of space and hopefully have a transformational experience. Yeah, and, and the way that you guys are designing it, it's gonna be eight passengers, pilot, co-pilot, food, drinks, observation windows all throughout, yep. telescopes looking up at the heavenly bodies, oh, cameras yeah. looking down at and the earth. And lots of, lots of communication with people on earth. Yeah, um, you can live stream the whole thing. You could do that, yeah. You you could podcast from- I am from for Wilcast sure Ground. podcasting from, you need from to. space. Great, Yeah, I'll go with you. <laughs> All right, let's go. <laughs> so, so people understand what happens and why this balloon doesn't continue going forever. Eventually, the helium reaches a point where it is actually the same density as the stratosphere, I suppose, and, right? And, and it just, is, you know, the balloon has mass, it's heavy. It's, mm -hmm. it's an enormous envelope. And even though it's very thin, it's very, it's, it's heavy, weighs many tons. The capsule that has the 10 people aboard, the two crew and the eight passengers, it weighs about 12,000 pounds. And eventually the helium just can't lift that any higher. It's reached an equilibrium with the Earth's atmosphere. And that's where it'll top out at 100,000 feet Stratosphere, or so. technically, right? Yeah, 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 not technically, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, uh, from those altitudes, you know, we've taken pictures in our test flights. And it, for all the world, it looks like you're, you're flying on the ISS. You see the curvature of the Earth. You see the blackness of space. The clouds and other formations that are, are down there. They look like little scale models, mm -hmm. right? And you don't see any borders. Um, what you see is this one fragile planet. Um, and Worldview is going to give unprecedented numbers of people a chance to do that at prices that are more than 10 times less than are being offered for the rocket flights um, up to the to altitudes and for much longer periods. Instead of tens of minutes, it's something more like 10 hours. Yeah. So I think the value proposition is tremendous. You get a longer flight for a lot less time in a luxury cabin, like you're flying on Emirates Air, and you can really understand it and communicate about it. And uh, and uh, one of the coolest things to me is that to make the business model work, we have to do a lot of launches each day the weather's good. Just like at an airport, you don't just launch one airplane in the morning and that's it, like a NASA mm -hmm. rocket. You know, they're taking off every few minutes. And so... If you're on a worldview stratocraft in 2023 or 2024, let's say out of our first site here in Arizona, um, we're gonna you're gonna be able to launch and see other balloons ascending and look across the stratosphere and see other pods with other people. You can talk to them if you want. I think it's gonna be very sci-fi, wow. really cool experience to see this and know you're part of part of the first wave of humans to be able to ascend and see the Earth the cradle of humanity, the cradle of everything here to see it as a planet, which no other species could. I hope yeah. we change people's view of the planet. I, I think that it cannot but do that. And I hope we also change their view that the 21st century is really the pivot point to uh, a, a future in which space travel becomes ubiquitous near earth as we're pioneering and farther away as well. We're part of that progression. Yeah. That's our intent. Do you think that 
from the because there's you know all all many of the astronauts i think the statistic is over 80 percent have a phenomenon called the overview effect which is a deeply profound spiritual experience of seeing the earth without borders seeing the earth as one home and all of the divisions of race and religion and creed and mm. all nation and all of these different things start it just evaporates when you see from that unique perspective do you think that this is going to you know create that type of perspective shift for people i think mass? it is i think it is um uh back in july when richard branson flew on the uh virgin galactic space line that he developed and paid for more or less um uh, a friend and colleague of mine sarisha bandlow was another one of the crew members and uh and right after she got back i spoke to her a couple days later this is an engineer um who's a vice president at virgin galactic now she went mm. to purdue and then uh, went into the commercial space industry and then sh she was lucky enough to get selected to be on that first flight i asked her what was the most impressive thing that she saw when she looked out the window and she said it was that it was overwhelming mm. it was it it was so emotional for her and so you know if you can experience that so viscerally what would it be like to hover over a place on the earth for six or 10 hours? Yeah, because in the other one, you got adrenaline pumping like hell. You're just recovering from yeah, massive You're distracted G by forces. all these sensations. All of these things are happening. You got four minutes. You got a, a technician like yourself flying out of his seat, handling some shit that's going on. It's a lot to take in in four minutes yeah. rather than eight hours. And uh, you know, even talking to professional NASA astronauts, they pointed out that for them, they're flying at 18,000 miles an hour. You cross the continent of North America in four or five minutes. And so the terrain is always changing and you never can really stay and contemplate a place because you go around the earth in 90 minutes and the next pass, the earth is turned. So you're seeing other parts of the earth mm. and the worldview experience is going to allow people to sit over one of these wonders of the earth, like the Grand Canyon or the Aurora and be immersed in it all day long while the lighting is changing. Maybe the weather down on the you know, lower atmosphere is changing and really hover over the earth from a space type altitude, have that a kind of view no one's ever had, no human being has ever really had before. No one's ever had this experience of being able to see the changing planet below them, not to move from place to place, but to be over a place, particularly a special place. Right. And to watch it go through its day from the space altitude. I think it's gonna be transformational. Wow. I can't wait. I absolutely can't. I also wait. think I can't describe it till I see it. You know, it's, of course, I'm imagining, um, uh, and I think it's a pretty good, educated, scientific guess. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure it's going to be better than I can imagine. I I believe it too. So tell people, you know, a lot of people are hearing this. Explain to people how this works from a safety perspective. How you go up, how you come down, the safety measures that are put in place. Because I think that's going to be people's number one concern. All right, it sounds amazing. Obviously, finances are a concern. Uh, but again, this is you know ten times more affordable than any of these other projections of eventually what it's going to cost. So you know we're talking I don't know somewhere sub fifty thousand dollars you know is is generally what's looking. But obviously a lot of things have to happen. Um, well, nonetheless, it's an unbelievable experience that people get to have. But I think the reticence that a lot of people are going to have is like, well, fuck, like this sounds dangerous. But it's in talking with both yourself and talking with Ryan Hartman, mm -hmm. the safety of this seems really impeccable. Uh, 
that's what we intend for it to be. And let me start by saying, um, you mentioned that we've flown over 100 stratospheric balloon missions in the history of the company. We've never once had a crash. We've never once had an accident that would have killed people. We have had a couple of instances where maybe we had a balloon mission that we meant to go for 30 days, and after a couple of days, we had to bring it down early. Um, but we've never flown a mission up to the stratosphere and had a, had a problem. So we have a really good track record. Mm -hmm. And I want to compare that track record to, to, to Virgin and Blue Origin, who have also had spectacular track records. But right now, I think Blue Origin has flown 16 or 17 flights, and Virgin has flown six or eight to space altitudes, and we've got 100. In our, under our belt. And unfortunately, there was some tragedy on some of the flights. Uh, and some test flights for the other companies. Flights. Yeah. Right. So safety is our hallmark. Um, on board, the systems are have backups. They're redundant. So that um, uh, we know that if the radios go out, the pilots still have a second way to talk to the earth. Um, if the air conditioner goes out, there's a second air conditioner on board. Um, rising on a balloon is kind of a foolproof um, ascent system um, um, uh, compared to the number of things that can go wrong with a rocket engine, for example, or even a jet engine. Um, but once we're up there, it's very simple to come back down. We just start letting the helium out um, and we start a gentle descent. And when we get down low enough, we detach from the balloon and fly down on a parasail to a prepared landing site. And then at the moment of, of contact with the earth, airbags go off and the collision is just a mile or two per hour. So it's, it's more gentle than landing on a commercial jetliner. Um, and even that system has a backup because we carry a parachute in case the parafoil fails. So it's all meant to be as simple as possible and as redundant as possible to guarantee that we're not going to have accidents. People aren't going to get hurt. And of course, the success of our business depends upon being very safe. Yeah. When I was talking to Ryan, he was saying how it's not a pressurized balloon system where that actually there's giant vents that you have on there anyways that you open up these big flaps to mm -hmm. start letting the helium out anyway. So even if something crashed into the balloon and put a big hole in it, that would just mean you start your slow descent a little sooner than normal. That's right. That's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that tourist balloon system is also going to get used for scientific research, um, I think there's going to be a lot of media and marketing that's going to take place um, when, uh, when people like yourself and others have access to being able to do this. Um, we think there are going to be corporate uh, promotions and uh, ad campaigns and things that are done. You know, we want to see the widest number of use cases for this new technology to give uh, access to the high stratosphere. Yeah. So just to summarize how it goes, you have a, a zero-pressure helium that's not flammable, right? Exactly. <laughs> Non-flammable gas, and it's going to rise up, and you're going to slowly let out helium. And actually, I heard as well, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but the the helium is actually healing to the Earth's ozone layer. Like it's a it's beneficial to release the helium up to the ozone. Well, all all of the helium uh, that uh, that is produced ultimately comes from uh, you know processes within the Earth. Mm -hmm. For example, radioactive decay of rocks deep inside the earth. Um, and when letting that back out, um, uh, we're giving it back to the earth in effect. Yeah. So you let, start letting out the gas and it's going back. So, you know, zero environmental impact of letting mm -hmm. out the gas at that point. 
the balloon starts to descend when you're ready for it to descend. And you can actually track the flight based on reliable trade winds that are up in the stratosphere. It starts to go down. At a certain point, you open up the parasail, which is like a parachute, but it's going to allow a little bit more, more mobility to actually travel and hit your kind of landing approach. Exactly. And if that fails for whatever reason, and then a gentle airbag landing on the bottom, and if for whatever reason that doesn't work, then there's a parachute system, which is the same thing that all of these shuttles that end up landing, they use parachute systems, right? Isn't that how most shuttles get back down to Earth? Yeah, and if you think about it, when you fly on a commercial airliner uh, or, uh, or even a private jet, um, they don't have a parachute backup system. We're taking that extra step yeah. to make sure that um, uh, if we have to go to plan C, um, we're, we're still not out of luck and then everybody's gonna be safe. Yeah. So, I mean, this seems like it's obviously with anything, there's, you know, there's, there's risk with anything. There's risk in flying in a commercial jet. There's risk in getting in your car. Probably one of the most risky things is actually getting in your car. That's what statistically is shown but in any any time you're doing one of these things but it seems like in this case you know it's it's a very very reasonable triple redundant system that's uh designed to make this as safe as possible to give the maximum effect with the minimum risk yeah and you know i wouldn't be flying on some of the test flights um unless i thought it was personally safe um you know i plan to fly a lot uh, for a number of different reasons including to do research um and uh uh, I'm going to make sure from my perspective that we build the safest possible system and learn to replicate it over and over and do it day in and day out in a way that you never think twice about the safety inside the company we will, but, but our customers never should have to. Yeah. Epic. So people who are fired up and are like, look, I got to do this. And I can tell you, you know, from my standpoint, I am incredibly eager to not only take the flight, but also do some incredible things while I'm up there. I want to take my wife Vailana up there and some other musicians and be looking down at the earth and let her offer, she's a sound healer, let her offer a sound healing to the planet, you know, from space and all of these amazing ideas that are coming across. Like you said, podcasts in space or concerts, exactly. whatever you want to do. Yeah. So many different cool things that can be all kinds, All kinds of and art. And the whole thing example. is going to be like a real ceremony, you know, and it's the, the whole process is going to be a beautiful thing to experience but for people who are fired up like i am about this and what is the you know how does how does someone get in line is there going to be pre-sale offers is there going to be you know what is the way to start to uh prepare to book your book right. your experience well um uh, we've announced that we're we're in this enterprise now and that we've uh started the process for the federal aviation administration to certify these vehicles as safe um, we have a website. Just look up Worldview. Go to our website um, and sign up there. Um, you have to put down an earnest money deposit so that we know you're serious. Um, uh, but that's that's going to be a very small amount of money, five hundred or a thousand dollars. And then you're on our list and you're in line. And then as we develop the vehicles and get them into test flight and so forth, and we look further downstream next year. We'll come back and say, now, are you serious? Would you like to finance this flight like you'd finance a car? Um, or do you want to just write a check? I think a lot more people will want to finance it because who writes a check for a car? Very few people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and that's when we convert you over to actually getting in a flight manifest. And choosing, yeah, choosing your launch port and different things, depending on how those roll out over the years. And you know, you're, you're just saying about bringing the whole group with you. 
Um, this is an interesting metric, but for the cost of one ticket for one person to go on Virgin Galactic, um, you could rent an entire flight for eight people and take your family or your colleagues, your best friends, your band, whoever, mm -hmm. um, for the same price. You can rent out the whole vehicle and charter a flight. Yeah. Unreal. Well, it's been, uh, it's been, you know, one of the things that I've been most excited to be involved in, I was very fortunate to get access to actually invest and be a part of this company. And, uh, I'm just excited to be able to offer this perspective to myself, of course, first, and, and everybody else who's going to have access to this, this, you know, world changing perspective, truly, where we get to hopefully get that critical mass of people who stop seeing things in this myopic view of you know my this my that my this my that and get to the place of oh this is our home and this is these are our resources and this is our mother and i believe in this too like you do i'm not just an executive in the company but also also one of the investors um and what i'm looking forward to maybe most besides flying and seeing the experience myself is seeing what what creative humans do with this you know uh in the same way that no one had any clue when the first pcs were coming available in stores no one knew how tremendously they would change our lives and the same for airplanes and same for drones and so many other things in life it's the creativity of what we haven't thought of that people will be create creating in the 20s here and i said this at the outset I really think this is going to be very special because this is the one moment when it's new. And it's not just for select astronauts, but it's also not the 2030s or 40s or mid-century when this is pretty commonplace. The way that airplanes were new a century ago and, and everyone who took off in an airplane was like just blown away by the experience of seeing mm -hmm. Clouds from the other side, mm -hmm. you know, and to see the lay of the land and the way cities and ge geography works, you know, and coastlines. Um, uh, this people will look back on the say the first ten thousand people who fly with Worldview, and say that was a really special time in the early twenties when it was all new and ev everyone was figuring out how it what the applications were and figuring out how transformative it was. And it wasn't old hat the way it became by the 2040s. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that kind of specialness to this time as we start to fly um, year after next. Amazing. Well, we'll have to have this conversation again as this evolves, as you get up in the rockets, as you get up in the balloons and, uh, and hopefully as I get up in the balloons <laughs> shortly thereafter. So absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for coming on. It's great to, great to have this conversation. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Much love. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Alan Stern. If you're interested in anything that Worldview is up to or you want to reserve your spot so that you make sure you're on one of those pods that are going up to the stratosphere, head to worldview.space. That's www.worldview.space space and reserve your ticket to the stars well not quite to the stars but at least you'll get the most brilliant view of this beautiful star that we're all a part of